Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so happy you're with us today. When Raymond Moody and Paul Perry, those two wonderful friends, were our guests in the fall to share with us their wonderful new book, which is called Proof of Proof of Life After Life, which it really is, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife. We managed to get through, I think, only three or four of our seven reasons, and I wanted to finish it. So they're joining us again today, Paul for the second time, Raymond for the third time. And just for the record, not only did Dr. Moody coin the term near-death experiences almost 50 years ago now, he's a lot older, I think, than he looks, but very much later, he also coined the term shared death experiences. And even more than that, Raymond Moody is just a lovely guy. But Paul was a little late joining us just confidentially. And if I seem a little silly, it's because whenever Raymond and I get together, we can't stop laughing. And I've been laughing for the last half hour. Joining Raymond and me is Paul Perry, who is also an afterlife expert in his own right, and he's Raymond's co-author on most of his books. He makes, I think Paul has a gift, frankly, a writer's gift, because he makes all those books so easy to read and understand. But this latest book, which is, as I say, Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife, was so badly needed because it's lately been reported. I think I don't believe this myself, but it's been reported that even despite all the wonderful evidence we have now that there's, frankly, there's no death. Life continues forever. Close Mm to 90% of the world's population. I don't believe this, but they say it's true. Doesn't believe that our lives continue forever. They believe that there's a death. and, And I think that's just tragic. So Paul Perry and Raymond Moody have set out to remedy that, and there are seven proofs that our lives continue are very well chosen, they're solid, they're conservative, and they're right down the line sensible. And it's true of everything else that these two guys have written together, I can recommend this book to you without any reservation. In fact, I think that this is maybe the best book they've written together. So Raymond Moody and Paul Perry have come back today, and I'm thrilled to welcome them back. Welcome, welcome, Raymond and Paul. Hey, thank, thank you. you so much. And thanks to also so much to the folks listening in, really. It's great to have everybody here. I agree with you when you say this is the best book we've written. You do? Yeah. I, oh, I good. Do. I'm glad you feel that way because... Uh, um, I do. I've, I've written... Well, I've written 15 books on near-death experiences. And I started to realize, as Raymond and I realized jointly, is that the near-death experience is is subjective. Yep. It, and, and that means that someone has a near-death experience. They're, they're wonderful. I mean, they leave their body. Uh, they go into another dimension. They see dead relatives. They, they are greeted by a transforming bright light. But they can, they're the only ones who can really tell about their their near death experience and experiences and they're the only ones who can really talk about the effect that it, that it's had on them but what we started to look at was a thing called shared death experiences and we've collected these over the years and we probably we've had them in every book we've written but we probably haven't used them correctly like we did in this book we now we're using them as the basis of of, uh, of a book and of an explanation on why they're proof of life after death. What a shared death experience is is simply when somebody it's when somebody dies and they share their death experience with a living person, and that's that's simply what a shared death experience is. So it might be that that you have a precognitive experience. They share. They share their own death by showing up at the hour of their death, maybe at the end of your bed, uh, or you see them in the middle of the afternoon, and you never expected they were going to die, but here they are standing before you, and they're announcing that they're that that they're dying, and and it turns out to be true. 
That's one form of a shared death experience, but there's others. Uh, people who are transformed by the light that they see during a near-death experience can later share that transformation with people by being a transformed person. So there's many ways to look at a shared death experience, and those are a couple ways there. The most famous one of those happened on uh, the 4th of July, 1826. That is just the wildest thing, isn't it? Even when it happened, Roberta, the people were astounded, and they, it, people just immediately thought it had something to do with, you know, the God or the paranormal, but, ba but basically... On July twenty, on July fourth, eighteen twenty-six, fiftieth anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, hmm. Thomas Jefferson in Monticello, in Virginia, and John Adams <laughs> in, <laughs> in Massachusetts, <laughs> both on their deathbed, <laughs> both said essentially the same thing. They said Jefferson's last word were, words were, is it yet the fourth? And they told him it was. And, and then he said, doth Adams yet live? <laughs> and they said, as far as they know, you know, they did. And meanwhile, in Boston, Adams was saying, apparently, you know, the same question, is it yet fourth? And then they said that, and he died in, by White County, he died at mid-sentence. He was saying. You said Thomas Jefferson still survives. I think he saw Thomas Jefferson appear at the foot of his bed. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess they're still fighting over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Jefferson, they say, died in the morning and, and Adams in the afternoon. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. So, so it, no, but it, it's true. It's this is a this is a wonderful, wonderful. One of the many, and it's I, that that is one of the experiences that not particularly. I don't know if that particular one is, but that kind of thing, Paul, is in your book, right? Oh, um, sure. That that's one of the um, seven proofs of, of that of life so still survives. But sure. that's what I mean. You use these conservative and yet common evidences, yeah, that life continues. They can happen to anybody, and they often, often, often do. Oh, sure, mm -hmm. absolutely. And what they in what they indicate is that is that consciousness survives bodily death. That somehow yeah. consciousness leaves the body and and makes others aware of what's going on. Yes. Yeah, I think some thought needs to be put to this whole thought of. Um, what will happen to the whole fabric of the thing we're in hmm. if some, you know, very persuasive, rational proof of an afterlife emerges, whether it's some dramatic thing or through some process like's going on now, right? I mean, just project back to the year 1965, Robert. Mm -hmm. And you think about how freakish, I mean, a near-death experience in 1965 was something unheard of. Because, you know, CPR was not very far along, you know, then. Now, then all the, that technology emerges. Now, you know, I don't know how many countless people every year get pulled back from the state that, you know, just two centuries ago, that's dead, right? right. And tell us these same stories. And the number of people are accumulating. And not only that, we, you know, I'm sure you, you know, too, some people who've had multiple near-death experiences over a period of years, most commonly because of a continuing heart condition, right? So they go back. Yeah. So what they're doing, they're going kind of back and forth between here and there and their life force. And all of these people who are still, who are now here, who have very vivid memories of that other place. And everybody in the world, I guess, knows somebody fairly directly who has had this experience. And so what that means is that the afterlife is kind of penetrating this life. It's kind of emerging among us.
And my big question is, assume some big proof would become, you know, obvious. What would that be to to the fabric of things? Well, one thing, I don't think it would bring nirvana. Hmm. Uh, George Ritchie, who was the finest man I ever knew, once said to me, it's like he had this profound near-death experience. He once said to me, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. And George is so kind, he would never say it this way, but if I can translate, what he was getting at is, hey, you know, it's hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person, right? And so, you know, that... He didn't say that. No, he didn't say that. He had, no, no. He, he might have said that. No, that's what I'm saying. George, George would not, you know, he was too kind. But he was, you know, he was... But I'm putting it in the language I've heard from other people, really. I mean, I hear that all the time, that even after this profound vision of love, it's hard to get, you know, people are irritating. I mean, it's, there's so much. Yeah. But, people can you know, be irritating. It's natural. That's true. And so what I'm thinking is that I don't think that a rational proof of an afterlife would bring nirvana. I think people would still be having their conflicts and all. And I know I would. I tell you, I'm not going to forgive that guy who slighted me that dollar in 1979. I'm just saying all that. What I mean is that um, it's, this this path of love is very difficult to apply. And so I think that even if there's a proof of love and life, we still have a lot to do about toward love, but I think our minds would be a totally different instrument. Okay, Raymond. We would have whole new talents. Okay. You're a psychiatrist, Raymond. Well, well, yeah. you are, like it or not. Uh, like it or not. <laughs> do you think it would lead to new forms of mental illness? Do you think more people would, do you think, yeah, if, if there was solid knowledge of an afterlife, do you think people would just say, I give up on this life and commit suicide? Do you, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've really thought about those things, Paul, because this great friend of mine, Mac McDonald, he was the founder of McDonald Aircraft, which did the Gemini and then G- capsules and Mercury capsules. But he was he was uh, really interested in the afterlife question. And in 1976, he said to me something like, Raymond, you know, if we could prove there's, you know, rational proof of an afterlife. He, he said, in fact, you know, this would collapse all the ideologies and bring about peace on earth and all that. You know, I said, number one, Mac, it's no easy thing to think about a scientific proof of an afterlife. I mean, and one, which is what he was saying. But even if it was, I think we would still be dealing with human nature to a large degree. But I think that the mere fact that the mental transformation that would be required to comprehend a proof of life after death would be itself revealing of that's why the proof of Pythagoras was so important in antiquity. And this is going to sound so strange to hear your your 10th grade geometry spiritualized. But why that was so important in the context, Roberta, was that few people could read, okay, but that was the first time that people went through a process where they could go from simple concepts that a point means this, that a line means this, and go from simple statements about points and lines that anybody could comprehend through a series of, you know, steps that you could comprehend each step of it that you could comprehend serially to where you got at the top you could see this complex thing that the the sum of the the, 
the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides. And again, you know, in 2023, how mundane and all, but no, in, in that time, see, that was a major spiritual accomplishment as well as an intellectual accomplishment because you could feel the process of going through that. When they, they interpreted it as an ascent, as it would be to them, right? And and so, um, you know, I, I just think, I mean, it's it's something I think we should consider is, just, you know, what would, what would a... That's the, yeah. Well, but what, let's look at, look at how it affects individual people who are certain that life continues. I'm right. certain that life continues. I have a few friends yeah. who are certain yeah. that life continues. Yeah. And the only thing it does for me is to turn life into a comedy. There you go. That I never will die. And yeah. and therefore, everything to me is on some level. Yes, fine. yes. How, that's right. And at the same time, sad things occur too sadly, you know. I mean, and I'm just praying. There's nothing that is sad, Raymond. Nothing. Well, oh, well, nothing. you know. Personal. For me, nothing is ever, ever sad. Because I know Nobody ever dies. I have had die in my life, and I think, well, I'll, it feels like I'll see them next Tuesday, because my life isn't much longer now. Yeah, same here. Let me let me give you an analogy that I've used over the last ten or fifteen years, and it's it's all over the world, or er, where I've been since then. People respond like to this, and it's like, let's say that you were diagnosed with some horrific infection that requires you to be isolated on a desert island all by yourself for, say, 10 years. I don't have 10 years. Well, but, like, let's say, you know, somebody, you know, in there. Yeah, you know, just a regular, you know, like an audience of mid-people, 40s, 50s, okay, and so... And so I say, and so um, you got, uh, they can send you out on the cargo plane with enough food and water and medicine in the cargo hold to last for 10 years. And also there's additional space where you can put a DVD player and uh, let's say 5,000 or 7,000 DVDs. And so I asked people to seriously consider it. And, and I say, you know, like, would you choose all comedies? Very seldom to be, no. You know, and people say, no, of course not. And I say, well, would you choose some tragedies too? Yeah, sure. And then I say, well, when you were on that desert island watching the tragedy, would you be crying? Well, sure, because that's the experience of watching the tragedy. And and I kind of think that we are in that situation. We may choose things coming in here that even in the choosing process, we know that it's kind of like I just think of my wonderful dear daughter who, oh, my God, used I used to sit and stand in the line with her for two hours waiting for her to get on the roller coaster oh my, and me, me on the ground terrified the whole time. Right. But she, you know, zooming around upside down and for entertainment and fun, you know, it's just. But what I think about that situation now is that people to my I can't comprehend this, but apparently people get up on that thing, knowing full well that they wish what they're going to be wishing when they were going 95 miles an hour upside down that they weren't there. And I think that's kind of what life is a lot of times. It's like in the long run, you might like I would think I was thinking during the pandemic, Roberta, it's like if I knew that I had 5,000 lives to leave, would I choose some some of them to live through a pandemic? Yeah. Why? Because just like you're saying, Robert, this is the movies. This is the movies that we're watching. This, we are God's stories, to, just to tell you the truth. Yeah. And that, you know, each one of the movies is we may choose that before we 
come here because to learn or experience something, but that doesn't mean that when it's going on, we necessarily be, you know, yelling and applauding. Yeah. Is there, what is I, fra- there is a phrase used often uh, by millennials and, and even boomers is uh, get out of my movie. <laughs> you know, if uh-huh. someone somehow put themselves into your life, they'll say, I think it's time for you to get out of my movie. So it's, it's, rec- it's a recognized thing that we are living our own movies. Yeah. This Swami, this Swami, like a Hindu guy. But I, cannot, I cannot imagine being sad. I can't mm. imagine the feeling of being sad well, anymore. Good for you, Roberta. That's wonderful. Good for you. Because it has been so long since I felt that way because I know there is no death. And if yeah. there's no death, that turns everything. Yeah, yeah, it, there, there is, there is. Nobody Absolutely. you know is ever going to die. I, I and really. I know people who are very sick, and I look forward to the moment when they're not sick anymore, when, when, when they are going to be happy forever. Yeah, I, I guess you know. I really kind of am beginning to get that. Is is paradoxical and counterintuitive as it seems. People say, "Well, there is no death." And you know, in the, on the physical You're side, you're supposed to be the it, expert on this kiddo. Well, well, but you're no expert on expert this because I kind of listen, really, and, and I just. Uh, but what? Even there's a group there really now. Is no death. There's what a group really, now. What you're really talking about here is reincarnation. the third state, right? And but but to some extent, it's um how this comes to an end, right? Is I guess you're right. You're right in turn. That's how that. When when you that see that idea is you, lying there, yeah. there is in the room a joyous being who is saying, "Wow, there really was no death after all." Yeah, and around right. that person, there are all these young-looking people who looked old when they were in their body, but now they lo- will, will look young forever, and they are so happy, and they're hugging that. As you know, because you you you've read the script, you you wrote the script. It's in your book, Proof of Life After Life. Yeah, they're all hugging. I'm going to ask special because you don't want to stay around that that old, awful, crummy looking thing in the casket anymore. Come with us. Come. I want. I want to look forever young. Raymond, listen to me. It's all beautiful. Oh well, it is. I know what it. Yeah, you know, I know exactly what you mean. And the comic spirit is what you're getting at. And and it's it is joyous. because if you think about the the notion of life after death, in terms of like literary theory or whatever, that notion is inherently comical because hmm. what a comedy is. Is a it ends it has a happy ending right typically marriage but it's like the notion of the comedy it brings about it's even a, better than marriage I know I've been married more than fifty years it's even better <laughs> than marriage yes there you go and so and so death on the other end on the other hand ends in a, a tragedy on the other hand ends in a death now what that means is that the notion of an afterlife is is comical in the sense that it un- unfolds the notion of tragedy as well. It's just like you're saying. In other tragedy words, that- implies an ending. The final joke on all of us is there is no ending. Yeah, there I'm beginning no to figure this out. It's it's kind of you go through this sort of incomprehensible process, and it the story goes on. Is what you I know get. what happens to a butterfly. The joke yeah. is on the butter. The joke is on the worm because the worm becomes a butterfly, and that's true of all of us. Yeah. Well, I've always thought near-death experiences should be the a big source of comedy for movies. Just just for that very thing, is you know, it's it, things get hellish, they get awful. Someone, you know, dies in a car wreck or something, or they're drunk driving, or they're, they don't like their current life. And boom, the next thing is, okay, <laughs> what are you going to do now? You know, the next thing is you go to a heavenly realm. And uh, there's a few good movies like that. 
I got out of my body and I went through this tunnel, but there's a man standing there. He said he had to take a toll. He said, <laughs> where's the toll? I don't have any money. <laughs> you know, whatever. There's so many comic premises going back literally to antiquity. The, you know, the great comedian Lucian made jokes about near-death experiences. And uh, a long time ago, uh, Roberta, I actually was a, I guess you would say, a, I mean, I would say professional comedian or semi-professional in the sense that I made money from it. And I, I just, I had to give it up because I was in a psychiatry residency at the same time, couldn't yeah. do both. But, uh, you know, in terms of, of that. Roberta, you know, this is true. In fact, yeah. for your listeners, as an aside here, there's a comedy album that Raymond did. Yeah. And yeah. if anybody hey, why does has that not that, surprise me? You always make me laugh. <laughs> but if anybody has that access to that, please contact Roberta. And, uh, and she'll contact us because we've been looking for that comedy album for years now. Yeah, it's um but it's have still the same, my head. same name when you're doing the comedy album? Is is it your your same name? Well, Raymond? yeah, I, that's right. I, if I, but I had a character. Uh, and, and, you know, I still do this. It's like you might, if you talk to Evan or Karen, and they, you know, they keep up with my, but it's like, uh, like here, here the other week where Dr. Mitchell was resuscitating this man in his office. And when the man come back, he said he got out of his body after he had the heart attack and he went up. And he went up through this tunnel and seen this bright light, but he come out on this beautiful place. He said it looked like a meadow with flowers and trees, beautiful things all around. And the man said that when he come out, he found himself lying flat on his back in this meadow, feeling like he was going to pass out. When all of a sudden, a great white, white, a great big white bunny come hopping up, but standing up like a man and with a face like a man. And he said the big bunny had a blue and white pokey dot shirt on like a clown would wear and was wearing a big bright blue stethoscope around his neck like a doctor would. And then he said the big bunny came down real close to his face like this and one time <laughs> and blew him in the face like that. And the man said, told Dr. Mitchell that as soon as the big bunny did that, the man felt himself whirling back to the tunnel. And there he was lying on the, on the table at Dr. Mitchell's office. And he t got to telling Dr. Mitchell about it. And Dr. Mitchell said, well, there may be something to it because you did come to just within a hair's breadth of dying. That's a really good pun. A hair's breadth. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, that is that's a terrible pun. I another, know, another I don't one. even know how to get my way out of this one. <laughs> I don't know. Another one of Dr. Patient, Dr. Mitchell's patients that had, had a near-death experience. Oh said that when he was went down this tunnel, he said he sat like at the end of the tunnel, he started, there was cows or something going, bah, bah, bah. and he seemed like a wall or something, looked like, sounded like a bunch of cows on the other side. And when he come out there, he said it looked like he seen a cowboy on a rock holding a lasso. And the man said when he went up and got out of the tunnel, he looked at the cowboy and he said, oh, I guess, he said, I guess this is the last roundup. <laughs> and, and the cowboy said, no, mister. He said, no, mister. He said, you're having a near-death experience. He said, this is the next to the last roundup. The next, oh, Lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's, let's talk about Book. Okay. <laughs> you see where I whenever whenever I 
<laughs> Whenever I see Raymond, I it makes me just be. I just take one look at your face and I start feeling silly, Raymond. That's <laughs> that's oh. the effect you have on me every time. <laughs> oh my word! But I suppose that's true of other people too. You put you just are, you have this sort of thank you so much. Smile. Thank you so anyway, much. Was that a compliment? I think it is. Yes, okay. you sort of make people happy. What can I say? Yeah, it's just so great fun to have. You know, I had a performance one time. Actually, it happened to be at Harvard, but I was doing my comedy thing, and it was the laughter was so loud. I was, it, you felt that pain in your chest, like from the vibration of laughter, and the this cardboard poster on the wall fell down from the noise. And and that was the, you know, I mean, I've experienced the audience laughter a lot of times, but I don't know if because of the acoustics of the auditorium or whatever, that was just remarkable. The, the laughter, it, you know, it really gives you a lift personally. When yeah, you- yeah. It, 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 it's, people say it's quite, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling if, if you are someone who, uh, who, does comedy it's a wonderful feeling when you can get well, there's a, that laugh. great book too by norman cousins remember laughter is the best medicine yeah, yeah. 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 which is actually an excellent book by the way yeah. Yeah. and robert i i'm i'm saying this just because i feel that you'll be interested in this but i know this dear, dear man i haven't seen for a number of years because i covet and all you can't travel anymore but uh uh, my friend Eric Pagani, I think he used to be on PBS as like one of the classical music experts or something, but he's well known in France as both a classical pianist and also as a psychologist. And he's, he does the la, psychology is their very famous, you know, psychology magazine or journal over there and in addition he's really such a neat guy and he is the his pride of is so and so joyful that he is the uh psychological director of disneyland paris as well and you know he's always loved disney stuff and so been just this completely wonderful person roberta and uh, he is—he has, I guess, most fame as the con- as a concert pianist. And so he, in 1988 in Paris, he was telling me that uh, this is not too long past. He had been playing a concert, and that suddenly he just went into the light, his out of his body into the light. And 17 minutes later, he came back to awareness at the cart, at the keyboard, having played three pieces. And now Eric is... I just he was don't playing know. while he was having his NDE? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he... And so Eric is just this completely kind-hearted and modest and sweet person. So I said to him, I said, well, did the audience seem to appreciate the performance? And he said, just like, yes, they did. Yeah, they really did. Well, fortunately, his sister was there who had happened to be at the performance. And she said, as a matter of fact, people were jumping up and down, yelling, screaming. Now... Now, Eric, being a psychologist, says, hmm, if this has happened to me, it's happened to other performers, too. And knowing a lot of people, especially a lot of his friends, were operatic performers. And so he asked around among them, and yeah, that was very common for them, too, that when they were performing great music, that from their point of view, they would lift out of their bodies. They would see it from. They would be in a the light. They went into the zone. Yeah, to the zone. Okay. Yeah, and he he wrote a book. He wrote a book on this back in the eighties or nineties, or I guess the nineties. Which you know, sadly, it never is translated into English. But it's just a 
He's just, he's an exceptional person in that. And then I've heard this from other performers as well as this. And in Spain, I got sitting next to this guy, a rock star from America. I don't know which one he was. We had a nice conversation, but I didn't know his. But all the police were outside the whole deal with the tape. Yeah, yeah, back to the fans. So we were on the same program. So this is a really nice guy. And he just, you know, he had read my book or something. So he started talking about this. And he said, in in relation to the near-death experiences from my book, he just spontaneously said, he said, you know, sometimes when I'm on the stage, especially this one time, he said, I was playing. It was just like a zoom right out of my body. And I was just, you know, in all this light. So you see, if we've heard just, the same thing is we we were you and I were talking before about writers and artists also have that experience. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote one of my books in two weeks. It was channeled. Yeah, yeah. And I don't remember really. I mean, I remember the being being in my mind, but I don't really remember the writing until it was done. But you can't write a book in two weeks. That's just not possible. I did that too, Roberta, one time, but the people at the mental hospital, they wouldn't let me take it out when I finished it. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. Hey, oh, I'm my just, word. I'm just kidding. No, I, I, think, yes. I think a and, you lot know, inspiration. Of, of artists and writers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Voltaire yeah. said that same thing about Candy. It's like he wrote it just in a continual stream. Oh. And I've heard from just writers, sometimes that happens. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, let's talk about your book, I, because I at least want to talk about what the what the seven, um, not signs, the this, this seven um, pieces of yeah. evidence are. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, Reasons to believe. I just, I just want to talk about what they are. Maybe Paul, maybe you could tell us what they are because I think it's, it's very important. I'm not sure we can say much about them now because we're, we've used up most of our time in just kibitzing, which They're is really. what friends do. Reason number one. Yeah, I'm going to pull them right out of the book here. Okay, out of the yes. Uh, well, re- reason number one is shared death experiences. We explain the shared death experience and, and, and why it's a step beyond the near death experience. That's yeah. their, their first, first one reason number. Well, then reason number one is actually the out of body experience. You know, people who leave their body and they, and they are able later to recount uh, where they went, what they did and recount things that they shouldn't have been able to recount had they not been out of, out of their body, truly out of their body. Yeah, they can talk about something that happened at a distance. People will verify that did happen at a distance. They couldn't have known it if they had not been out of their body. Oh, the sure. Yeah. Sure. And they'll, they'll recall conversations that happened in different rooms, uh, recall what people are wearing, you know, what they're saying, how, how uh, you know, on and on. Uh, and that is impressive information. That's right. What, what impresses people about... Aunt Mary Jane, who had this experience, is is probably that she is saying it, you know, and that they know Aunt Mary Jane from you know personal experience. So it's like but it's this just is, not it's not possible unless unless she had been out of her body and present in that room, she could not have. So so there that's that that's a very important piece of information that she was sure. out of her body yeah. and in that room. Sorry. So what's like, number like two? right now, you know, you're sitting in a room here, but if you had an out of body experience, conceivably you could leave where you're at and go a couple of uh, houses down. Right. Tell what's going on in that house. That's, that's the kind of uh, evidence we have in out of body experiences. Right. Uh, number two are precognitive events. And, okay. and those, for example, are, what's a good one? I'll give you a good example. This is this comes from a a movie producer whose name I can't reveal, but she was in uh, Massachusetts visiting uh, a boyfriend, and uh, she's from LA, so she was in Massachusetts visiting a boyfriend. All of a sudden, she woke up in the morning, and it was uh, like early morning, and she was feeling very uneasy, and. And she looks over at her boyfriend. Her boyfriend has done the same thing. He's woken up 
And he says he feels uneasy as well. Suddenly, a her father appears above them, above both of them. Her boyfriend had never met the father, but he later could describe from, from a photograph who, the, who it was that was above them. And he was just above them saying nothing, but they were seeing his image. And then later, a few hours later, she got a call from her mother who said that, that uh, her father had just died. And she was very tight with her father. And she, she said it was not a creepy event at all, as you might think it would be. Uh, but, but a realization that she had always been very close to her father. And here he was appearing at his, his moment of death to tell her that he was no longer with her, but he's with her in, a, in a, another dimension. So that is a precognitive experience. We have okay, many wow. of those. Okay, number three. Number three is the transforming light. And, and that is in which a, a person who has a near-death experience is profoundly transformed by the bright light that they see. Many times children will, will refer to the light as, as go to the light, it's the place where all the good things are. And people who other people who are exposed to the light de describe it as being uh, God, describe it as being Jesus, they describe it as just being this powerful being, although they rarely see a being in the light. They imagine it being a certain uh, person because it has that level of power over them. And uh, in studies that have been done, I was involved in one in Seattle, the transformation study, where we looked at children who had had near-death experiences, people who had near-death experiences when they were children, and they had very powerful experiences of, of light. And they always point to that as being the thing that has stuck with them all these years that they were, they were greatly transformed by that light because that's where all the good things are. And, and that's why they're transformed. Uh, well, number four is terminal lucidity. And that's, that's one of the latest things to be examined by, by medicine that relates to, that uh, relates to this field, relates to life after death. And, and, and I actually, some people call these Lazarus experiences. Because what a shared death experience is, is that a person essentially dies. That's the terminal part of it. But yet they become lucid again. So there's many cases where people who, they have no more brain waves. <coughs> They've had seriously very profound head trauma, head trauma, and they're essentially dead. They have no more brain waves and they're essentially dead. Yet, minutes later... Maybe it's in some cases over an hour later, people will come back and be very lucid and and they'll be able to talk with great lucidity about things. They'll talk to members of their family who are gathered around the bed. They'll, they'll talk to each one individually as though they never had any kind of an injury. And uh, uh, the, the devastating for the thing about a terminal lucidity is that the person then dies. Uh, they can die within minutes, or they can die within a couple of days. But but they've had these moments of lucidity in the midst of being essentially dead. And that's eternal lucidity. That's just now starting to be researched, by the way. Yeah, I I think it's quite exciting evidence. It is that our that we have we are not created by or anything to do with our brains. Really, it's when right. our our when we separate from our material brains, we are able to function very well again, which I think is quite amazing and wonderful. It is, and, and I think terminal lucidity is very common now that it's been kind of named. And defined, yes, it is common. That frame and deal with the near-death experience. Once something gets named and defined, people feel like it's okay to talk about it. And it happens all the time. It happens very May frequently. I interject just like one thought, which is that that is in the foundation of Western thought and Plato's works and one of the foundational, the way the Christians got their notion of an afterlife, their theology of the afterlife was through Plato's Phaedo. And it's about Socrates' death saying like the day he died. But it begins with what we would call now terminal lucidity because his he's been having this experience of Dreams and visions in which he, the 
they've been telling him from the other side to pursue music, which he had always before thought trivial. So he's been songwriting essentially. His friend, his his friends who are coming in think for that reason he must be crazy because you know you fancying himself a songwriter. But he goes on to talk about this and you know how the poetic inspiration can come and as and and the the uh the terminal lucidity phase. And sometimes people start reciting, oh, I heard it myself one time in medical school <laughs> in my surgery rotation. And then, you know, in audiences and all, if you ask, like, you got 100 people, there's going to be somebody there. Yeah, his grandma was dying. Just, she was talking poetry or whatever, it's, you know, or singing. And, uh, you know, it's just part of this picture of, you know, something happens at death. And that was the end of my thought. Yeah. 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 But that's a good that's a good point, I think, Raymond. I that's this is a, a sort of coming phenomenon. I think we're gonna hear more about that, that especially oh, sure. about that one. But there are three more. We, and I want to get three more. Okay. Uh, uh, there's a really great ones, the, the spontaneous acquisition of skills. There's a number of people who have near death experiences and they come back able to do something they had never thought they would even be interested in, or never thought they could uh, they could do, you see this a lot in in the art world. There's there's a number of people. If you ever go to a near death uh, experience conference, uh, which there are many around the country, it's almost always someone who brings their artwork up on the wall, and their artwork deals with their with their near death experience. You'll see people who. Uh, uh, do images of the light or do images of going up into tunnels. You see a lot of the tunnel experience uh, artwork. But there's also other people who pick up uh, skills that you never would have thought they would have had. And and one of the, the examples we use in the book is uh, Tony Chikoro, who is an orthopedic surgeon in upstate New York, who acquired the ability to play a piano and not just play a piano, but to play it well enough that he's been able to play in concerts uh, in Lincoln Center, concerts in Austria, and other places around the world, and and he picked that up by being struck by lightning in the back of the uh, back of the neck. Uh, so wow. you see the, you see that frequently enough for it to be uh, it's a shared death experience. They're able then. This is a guy who never played piano, <clears throat> who all of a sudden. Is uh, is good enough to become a concert pianist, you know, and it's wow. all based on this uh, near death experience that he had. Uh, oh well, another one which is absolutely incredible is a chapter called "Light, Mist, and Music." And what that is is this: is that many times, as a person is dying, uh, other people, let's say it's in a hospital, they'll come into the room. And they'll see the room lighted up, or they'll see a, a it's like mist and music, or they'll see a mist emitting generally from their abdomen that uh, it's been described as being greenish in color and, and, and other colors reddish in color, but it will hover above their body. And then, and then uh, one, one doctor, these have come to us from doctors. A lot of this stuff in this book has come to us from doctors which is a whole other story. But years ago, they wouldn't talk about near-death experiences. Now they're having them. Uh, but one of the fellows who saw this mist come out of a patient, it hovered above his uh, the patient's body, and then it was just sucked away like it was in being sucked up by a vacuum, and it dissipated. And uh, uh, that's fairly common. I think Dr. Moody has even seen that in, in patients as well. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell I, it's you. You just jabber away because I mean, what words do you have? But I, I've heard this from other doctors that you know, as the patient dies, they see this mist, fog, you know, whatever they label, and I've seen that a couple of times myself. And I, what can I say? I mean, I just. Uh, there aren't any words for it. You know that it's not in your mind. Is by the way, I am really good at 
having mental images and imaginations, stuff like that. And I'm so good at it that therefore I can recognize the difference, right? And this is, it is not something that is out there in the physical zone exactly, but it is definitely not from within your own mind is how you experience it because it's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's out there, but it's, you can, you don't experience it with your senses, I guess, but with, it comes to you by mind. I know what words are, but it's whatever words you put on it. It's, it's, it seems to be a fairly common experience. What, what appears to be the case is that what you're seeing is the person leaving their body. And right. what happens is that the vibration of the mist rapidly rises, and that's why you can no longer see it anymore. It forms into mm-hmm. the shape of a body as it rises in vibration. And that's what that's that then becomes the body that is greeted by the loved ones. Yeah. But we can't see that because its vibration has risen too much. Right. But there's one more, I think. Isn't there's there... one more. This is this is great. The, and the final chapter, reason number seven, is the psychomantium. That's and... right. That was yes. I remember. I re- yeah. you've written about this before, Raymond. Oh yeah, we wrote a book about it. And uh, uh, Raymond, uh, who I thought was a madman when he first started to approach, he's a madman in general. Let's he's a madman. Yeah. But it's good when Raymond is called a madman. That means he's on to something. <laughs> and, right. Uh, and so he's right. he. Uh, you might want to talk about the psychomantium yourself, Raymond, since you're here after all. Yeah, you know, because as you know, I'm so boring to everybody who knows me. Really, well, I'm just have so few subjects I'm interested in, and the near. <laughs> The whole thing, the near-death experience, all that, that came from my fascination since the age of 18 with the most astonishing story of history, which is the development of, of from Greek philosophy of the Western way of thinking. And it started with people like Plato and all, but yes, he, he, he came along. And when they'd already been around quite a while, it was going on. But uh, these people together put together the framework of Western thought as we know it. Now talk about the psychomania because we're running out of yeah, time. Well, there, Tell us what that uh, is. This, the place that this all started was these places called the Oracles of the Dead. Right, right. And there were places where they had these... Um, Play, you, you would go and they had various procedures. You would go down underneath and they had procedures for you'd go through and you'd seem to see and converse with spirits of the dead. And uh, and this is how Greek philosophy got started. The, the Greek philosophers were associated with these places. Now, now, it was, is it just crazy talk? No, it, you can actually do this. It basically, what one of the procedures they had was that you create an optical clear depth. You can do it with a mirror in a darkened room and placed on, on the side of the, the room so that you, when you sit in a comfortable easy chair in front of it about three feet or so, and you're gazing up, you can't see your own reflection. That's very important. This is not a matter of reflections. So you position the mat, the mirror on the wall in a point of view or above your line of sight so you don't see reflections. You can do it in a darkened room or in a, a walk-in, spacious walk-in closet. You can paint the walls flat black or something just to create a dark shape. And to have a little wrist at a dimmer switch on a light bulb, a dim light bulb behind you, <clears throat> chair so that when you're in this room and it's dark you turn on that light the light comes up diffusely from behind and illuminates the mirror but you don't see any reflections it's like you're gazing away into a different infinite space all right now uh what that that's the all the apparatus you need the procedure is number one get a helmet by all means, and I'll tell you why later, but 
to somebody it doesn't have to be a psychotherapist although i, don't, I charge up to 250 an hour <laughs> no i don't do this anymore but but you you need somebody to the reason is right you need as you approach this you need to choose somebody you know who died that you want to see again and then you talk about that person with somebody you trust. Like it can be a, it can be a counselor, but it can also be like a friend who, that you really is good at feelings and things. And so the point of this discussion is to talk about this person that you want to see again. And you, you talk about your memories and the, and to ask also about, well, what were some of the hangups or difficulties and the, uh, you know, in the relationship, like how you really didn't mean it when you tossed that dynamite at Uncle Clovis. It was just a mistake, right? But, you know, my point is all of us have the it's good signs and bad signs. So that's the point. Like over how long the process is what's important. It could be an hour, hour, whatever, however long it takes to bring an hour to really go into how you're feeling and your memories about Uncle Clovis. And then you go into this chamber, which is very comfortable, and you, you, you know, just get comfortable in the chair and you gaze away into the mirror. And the person who's putting you in says something like, I'm going to leave you in there an hour, hour. Don't take a watch in. Okay. No. As some people try to do, it's like, no, no. It's you. This you need to just get down into the state of relaxation and look far, far away. And uh, under those circumstances, in the initial study I did, it was essentially hundred percent because they these people had already had some experience with the mirror gazing and stuff. But that aside, there are a lot of people who are not patient enough to go through that first part. So. Maybe I just want to go around in there and try to see Uncle Clovis, okay? And under those circumstances, it's about 50% of the people. In Arthur Hastings' study, it was 63% of people who are guided through this procedure. It has some experience, which they interpret to be. Uh, to my surprise, I, I did not anticipate when I started doing this study that since these were my psychology students and my uh, graduate students of psychology and my medical and psychological and sociological colleagues, and I was just assuming that anybody had this experience, it would be like, yeah, I saw this image. Was it real or was it grandma? I don't know, you know. Um, but this is, no, this but, is but my point is it is this works. It's like I read, I read I read your book on it and and I was yeah. fascinated by it. Yeah, it was good. And you can actually have an experience of from your it seems completely real. Yeah, that you talk to grandma. And this is now this is now an accepted form of psychotherapy by the School of Transpersonal. Uh, Therapy. In fact, they've done several really extensive uh, uh, research papers on this and found it to be extremely effective for handling what? Grief? Uh, yeah, which is, by the way, the way it was used regularly, I gather, and by medieval physicians as a way of, because this, this knowledge keeps cropping up. Mm-hmm. Uh, some institution in Rome, I forgot what it was, keeps kept trying to suppress this information, and uh, but but it keeps leaking out, and <laughs> people keep rediscovering. May it keep leaking out forever. Oh, my dear yeah. friends, we have so much come to the end of our time and run over. I wish we could do this all day long. I so enjoy both of you. Likewise, thank oh. you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great to be on again. By the way, yeah, well, I, I think we're going to sort of do this semi regularly if we can, if we cool. can because there's a lot to go over. Yeah, that's for sure. The the website is lifeafterlife.com, um, and I think there are so many other topics we can talk about so easily. I want to follow this book too because 
Um, Thank you. Keep, so. giving it, keep giving it new life. And I hope other people do as well, because I think it's a, an important book in that it's evergreen. And it's the kind of book that won't scare anybody and should excite everybody. But um, everyone, um, this is this is Paul Perry and and Raymond Moody, and these are two guys that everybody ought to be following because what they're doing is wonderful work. Uh, no time to really give you any other information other than that our guest. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Please consider yourselves hugged because I could just sit and talk to you guys all day oh, long. My thoughts. There it's hugged you. <laughs> This has been Secret Reality with Roberta Grimes, and next week we're going to be talking with Paula Lenz, which we haven't talked with her in really in a dog's age. This is only her second time here, but I ran into her, and I remember we all really loved her when she was here, so we're going to talk to her again. She Her, her brother died, and she wrote a book called Driving into Infinity, Living with My Brother's Spirit, and she's a sweetheart. So she's going to be with us next week. Please join us. And that's all the time we have. So... Please just remember, you are God's best beloved child. This is a week when you are living in a reality, which is one reality. All of us together here are living to, to, to love, to support, to help one another, and to be part of a reality which we, in which we know none of us are ever going to die. And I hope this book will help you to understand that, but... This is not a tragedy. This is a comedy. So everybody just think of people like Raymond and Paul and, and the fact that all of us should just be loving and hugging one another all the time. And in this entire universe, you most of all are infinitely, perfectly, and eternally loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.